this evening, as has already been mentioned, how appreciative and thankful we each can be to the God of heaven that's allowed us to gather tonight. And perhaps in the aftermath of some of those precious thoughts of our songs and our prayer, perhaps Ephesians 3.21 might be an appropriate way to begin our thinking, in which on that occasion we read about the glory that we're able to offer and to present unto God. For on that occasion we read unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without me and amen. And so tonight as we gather and assemble in this way, our first and chief desire is to offer the homage, the reverence, and the praise unto God and express unto Him the devotion that's in our heart relative to His blessings to us. And certainly as I stand before you tonight, we each, in hearing what's taking place outside, can be thankful for the security we at this moment enjoy as we in fact use that to look into the twelfth lesson in our series of lessons on the Hebrews in which we look yet a second time at the tabernacle, and in particular the sanctuary. Last Sunday evening we looked at a lesson entitled, Christ's Superior Sanctuary, and tonight we have the opportunity to continue that series of studies. Perhaps to begin our lesson this evening by way of some introductory thoughts, it certainly would be in order to at least highlight the marvelous superiority found in the book of Hebrews how that we are set before our minds the notion of just how better the things of Christ really are in comparison to any other way of religion the world might offer, in comparison, in fact, to any other thing that man may offer as an approach toward happiness or rightness in any way. Christ, better than Moses, Joshua, the prophets, better, in fact, than any of those characteristics of the Aaronic priesthood. And, in fact, last week as we looked at the courtyard, that portion of the tabernacle recognizes the courtyard. We learned about two pieces of furniture there, the altar burnt offering on the one hand, the laver on the other, and we found that they spoke volumes about the very nature of the church as you and I perceive it set forth in the New Testament. And as we came to see, then these matters written so long ago are not just a matter to be relegated to ancient history they have a very pertinent and vital lesson for us to chew on as members of the body of Christ today. And tonight we shall find the same to be true as we look further into the tabernacle. As we begin those, that lesson tonight, we might need to in fact revisit a bit about that tabernacle and in fact enter now into the tabernacle per se. And to do so by looking at that holy place that one first encountered as you pass through the courtyard and then into that first aspect or that first section of the tabernacle itself. These ideas found in the book of Exodus primarily, but there are also references to be noted in both Numbers and Leviticus. I have listed on the slide some of the thoughts that we'll first make note of as we first rec recall some of the specific features and dimensions. As you can see, the dimension itself given to us of that holy place is recognized in the Word of God in Exodus 26.15 to involve some 30 by 10 by 10 in dimensions of cubits. And as one gives some feeling and thought to what that particular distance was, that helps us see that we were looking at around some distances that would be much like this. Some 45 by 15 by 15 in dimensions of feet. So if you wish to compare that to a kind of room that one might encounter today, that gives you some feeling as to the size involved. The entrance was only by way of a direction from the east. There was no other entrance into this place. 
Thus, there was no back door. There was no side entrance. There was no tunnel of any character. There was but one way into this recognized holy place of God. What's more, we can really appreciate that that tabernacle itself was divided into two portions, two sections. We find that description in Exodus 26, verse 31 and following. That which divided it was a veil. We shall learn later about the remarkable significance of that veil. But for now, let's simply notice that would have formed the western boundary, if you please, of this holy place. You might ask, what was in this holy place? What were the pieces that God structured and that he commanded to be present there? We learned earlier about the laver and the altar burnt offering that God specified to be placed in the courtyard. What did he specify to be placed in this holy place? Did he leave that for Moses to decide? Did he leave that for the children of Israel to vote on? Might we quickly and with marvelous character affirm that he did not? And in fact, we are told, See thou, make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. God specified this pattern in every detail. And isn't it amazing that Hebrews 8.5 quotes that passage and uses it with respect to the church. Today it is still true that all of us must appreciate, See thou make all things according to the pattern showed unto thee. When it comes thus to the church even, may we never forget that human hands never touched it. It was God who ordained and set forth the fullness of its character, how it's to be entered, the nature of its worship, the fullness of its government, and every particle that's related to it. He left none of that up to men to decide the manner by which that ought to be done. It was the same with respect to this tabernacle. As you look furthermore on the portions or the pieces that were in that tabernacle, the holy place of it, you'll notice that these three things specified by God were placed therein. First of all, there was on the north side, that would be on your right as you entered into that holy place, God made commandment that a table was to be there placed, and on that table was showbread. S-H-E-W-B-R-E-A-D is the way the King James reads it. This table of showbread, furthermore, God specified the following items. There were to be 12 cakes placed upon it. Not 11, not 13. 12 cakes in two stacks of six. And with God's specification of what that involved, you notice that the priests were given commandment to change those loaves every Sabbath. Thus, once placed, they would remain in place until the following Sabbath, and only the priests were allowed to eat that showbread. You'll find descriptions of that in Exodus 25, 23, as well as Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 5. As we will later shed some light on the significance of the showbread, might we first notice that as you would have entered as a priest, on your right would have been a table, and even God specified how that table was to be made, but there were to be 12 loaves of showbread. That is to say, the bread of the presence is the actual way the Hebrew would render it. The bread of the presence. P-R-E-S-C-E-N-C-E. But might we furthermore notice that also on the south side, to your left as you entered into this holy place, there also was a piece of furniture, if we may wish to call it so, for there was a candlestick, a golden candlestick, if you please. For that's the description that was given by God to Moses with respect to this interesting article. This golden candlestick 
was such that we are told that it had some six branches and a total number of lamps equal to seven. Furthermore, we learn that olive oil was to be the oil utilized to maintain the flames in that golden candlestick. And we find rather extensive descriptions given in Exodus 25 as well as Exodus 27. It might be interesting even at this point to contemplate our one final piece. This would of course been directly in front of you as you entered that holy place and thus on that western boundary of it just in front of the veil. One finds an altar of incense. We find on it that each morning and each evening as given commandment by God, by the high priest, there were offerings of incense to be made, Exodus 30, beginning in verse 1. And as one appreciates then these three interesting pieces of furniture with all the details accompanying them, no doubt one might immediately ask, what was the importance of each of these? Could they help Israel militarily somehow? Were they by some means useful in a military conflict? Or were they in fact useful in far other ways than that? And it'll be the burden of most of the rest of our lesson tonight to shed some light upon each of them and to ask what was the significance as insinuated and stated by God. You'll notice one last statement that will lead us directly into the rest of our lesson. All of these had tremendous significance not only then, but as a foretaste of the blessings of the church today. A study of the tabernacle, as you and I maybe have noted even in our Sunday morning opportunities as we start leading to it in the Exodus, so much that was directly affirmed then points without doubt to the blessings and the reality of today. No wonder we would do well to strive to appreciate the tabernacle, these elements contained in it, and the significance that God had in store for them. As we turn our attention then to this holy place and these three pieces of furniture found therein, may we note first a few matters about those who had the opportunity and the privilege of entering that place. First of all, we learn early on in our study of the latter part of Exodus that the priests were those blessed by God with the privilege of entering into that holy place. Those again who had entered by virtue of the laver having washed their hands and feet appropriately, and thus with preparatory thoughts of entering into this very special place, this sanctuary decreed and ordained by the God of heaven. As you notice what is written there at the top, we notice that as those priests were stated to be the ones permitted and blessed to enter into that holy place, may we pause for a moment and learn a valiant lesson. That that holy place was a figure of and a symbol of the church of today. In its purity, in its power, in the nature of that in which God set it forth through the blessedness of His Son, that holy place was a representation of those centuries before the church began, there on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, it was foreshadowed in its nature by the matter relating to the holy place in the tabernacle centuries and centuries earlier. Consider these words of 1 Peter beginning in verse chapter 2, verse 5. In verses 5 through 9 of that chapter, the inspired apostle Peter helped each of us understand the fact that all of us are a priesthood unto God today. Every Christian is thus called a priest. Each one of us, when the sound of my voice, who have been baptized for the remission of your sins, you are a priest unto God. 
as we give some thought to that in light of the special nature of the priesthood of the Old Testament, think about the privileges and the blessings that you and I now enjoy. Being able to be called priests and being able to thus serve in a way likened unto in type the way those priests of the Old Testament labored and served. I've listed some thoughts for you to consider that I think will help us even tie the lesson last Sunday evening to this one. In the same way that those priests were required to wash in the laver prior to entering into the holy place, you and I, of course, wash in baptism, as we learn in Hebrews 10.22, as we learn in Acts 22.16, as we learn in Titus 3, verse 5. You see, as you and I are washed, there is a marvelous likeness then. They're washed, and so too do we. And thus we enter into, or are able thus to enter into that holy place, the church in which you and I are entered, Acts 2.47. For on that occasion, aren't we reminded, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And verse 41 that precedes it says that they that gladly heard the word were baptized, of being about 3,000 souls on that day of Pentecost. Just as surely as there's likeness then in that element of washing, might we thus notice also some of the latter features upon that slide. For in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those thoughts then lead us to ask, if you and I as Christians are termed priests in the New Testament, that means there's a manner in which what they accomplished then is a type of what you and I are blessed to do now. You and I don't need to go to some man wearing a special garb and a robe and make our petition to him as a go-between between us and God. You and I can approach him through his son. That, of course, is a clear difference between the way we operate and, of course, those restrictions beneath the Old Testament. They had to go through a priest. They had to go through that particular man who, in fact, often represented such fallibility like Eli's sons and even like Samuel's and like others who, in fact, brought such difficulty to the children of Israel. But yet, in the blessing that we enjoy, might we thus ask, what then is the significance of that table of showbread? What's the significance of the golden candlestick? What's the significance of the altar of incense? Inasmuch as they were in the holy place, and that's representative of the church, is there significance for you and me today in all three of them? May we first turn our attention to the table, to the table of showbread and its significance. We shall return shortly to some of those comments to be noted there. But perhaps you might in fact already give some thought to the table of showbread, and that's not it, which is found on that occasion, at least some artist's representation of what that table of showbread may well have looked like. Again, God specified much in terms of the table, what it was to be made of, how it was to be overlaid, in fact, even how it was to be carried. I did appreciate this particular description of it, for you'll notice the staves in each of the four corners through rings located there, for that was the manner by which God specified it was to be moved and transported. But you will notice on the top of it are two stacks of loaves, six in each stack, a total of twelve. As that was represented on that occasion, we thus appreciate that a table somewhat like that 
was the very matter that appeared on the right-hand side as you entered into the holy place. You'll notice, of course, no scale is given, but that appears to be roughly the height which God ordained it to be made. It was not a tall table. Nowhere near the typical height you and I would appreciate as a kitchen table in our houses. It sat much lower than that. As you look upon that table of showbread and the loaves placed upon it, what then did it signify? What was the meaning of this for Israel and thus what may well be a powerful lesson for us today? Revisiting that former slide so that we can continue that description. You'll notice on it was the showbread that was eaten by the priests at the appropriated time. And no other of the children of Israel was specifically ordained by God to eat that, that showbread that was, there, that was there placed. You'll note near the bottom some of the thoughts from a record of those elements contained in that table of showbread. When you and I think about a meal, when we think about ingesting something with family and with friends, those who are so near and dear to us, one of the things that immediately jumps to our mind is the very thought of fellowship, the deep appreciation of communion with those whom we hold so dear, and in the deepness of perhaps those who have set forth that meal for us to enjoy. You'll notice near the bottom, the priests were required to partake of this in the holy place, Leviticus 24, verse number 9. They weren't allowed to take it out of the holy place, take it home and eat it. It had to be eaten in this place, recognized as the holy place, and only in that place. Notice that as we think about the notion of fellowship, the notion of communion, it does lead us again to some additional thoughts on that. As we give our attention to those thoughts in the New Testament about what the church appreciates in its fellowship and in its communion, may we not come to some passages like these. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.42, we remember on that occasion it was said that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. They continued with earnestness and with steadfastness in fellowship. They enjoyed a sense of community. They had been purchased by the blood of Christ, bound together in the blood of His Son. And inasmuch as they were bound in that way, in this body known as the church, they understood a type fellowship they had not known before, for it never before had been available. What's more, we can appreciate in 1 John 1 verse 7, a large and mighty statement of fellowship that's available to us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. That fellowship therein addressed is a fellowship one with another. But if we only go back two verses, to 1 John 1 verse 5 and following in verse 6, we'll find that you and I are blessed to have fellowship with God. It's a fellowship set forth by him, available with him, in which that loveliness is seen so grandly. Fellowship. As we give some additional thoughts to what that involves, we might well turn our attention to that Lord's Supper, of which on each Lord's Day we are blessed by God to engage in, to participate. For it too is a statement of communion. In fact, Paul uses that term to describe it in 1 Corinthians 10. He, in fact, refers to the communion we enjoy one with another and with God. 
This is a kind of fellowship greatly deep in its spiritual meaning, greatly significant in that which it conveys. As we give some thought to the notion of that fellowship, perhaps we should not be remiss to forget 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 34. In fact, in a rather extensive reading, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to look not lightly upon the Lord's Supper, for he even noted that some of them had begun to partake of it in ways that were not good, in fact, in ways that were divisive. And he turned their attention back to what happened on that fateful night, when in fact the Son of God instituted it, and he did so with a realization that this is my body, and this is my blood. This do in remembrance of me. It is thus to be taken with a sense of community appreciation for the one who set it forth, for what was involved in its establishment, and for the meaning of fellowship involved in it. It's no wonder how significant the partaking of the Lord's Supper is. It is a highlight of the community and communion that you and I enjoy as we appreciate the fellowship we're able to have with God. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, we learn that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. May we appreciate the fact those are not vouchsafed to anyone than outside Christ. And hence, being in Christ, we enjoy a fellowship that those in the courtyard simply do not know and can never know because they've never entered the holy place. Think, if you would, for a moment about standing in the courtyard. You could stand in that courtyard and perhaps you could hear some of the things going on inside if there were any noise to it, but you would never have been able to see it. You would never have been able to experience it directly. Perhaps word of mouth from those priests who had been in, they could tell you about it. But until you were able to experience it, if you could, you would simply have been left out. May we suggest today that those in the courtyard, those outside that have never entered in, like you and I have in baptism, entered into the church and been blessed by that, are so destitute because they miss so much. They miss, in fact, all the blessings available in the holy place. Isn't it interesting, then, as you look at some of those latter verses? Isn't it amazing as you think about the showbread, the bread of the presence again? Isn't it interesting, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John 6.35, and two verses earlier in his description of the manna, he said, Your fathers indeed had manna given by God, but I am the true bread from heaven. Jesus said he was the true bread. Those in the world eating various and sundry things, but missing the spiritual fruit and the capability of that bread, doesn't it remind us of what the Lord stated back in Matthew the fourth chapter? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. May we thus keep in mind, much was symbolized by that table of showbread. Much was to be appreciated by it, and it points us directly to the fellowship we have through Christ with God today in the church. But we might ask, what about the other elements in that holy place? Next up is the golden candlestick. What is represented by it? What might be the significance associated therewith? You'll notice on that slide a few of the things might well be noted. If I turn back to that picture that we had seen earlier, we can well look on that occasion at, in fact, one artist's representation of that golden candlestick. You'll notice again, this may well be something like what it would have looked like. 
As you look at the description given there in the book of Exodus, this seems to match it in many reasonable ways. And if you're able to see it with your eyes, you may notice some rather intricate detail work near the top of each one of the particular stands. Some of the descriptions found in the Old Testament indicate it was not something incredibly plain, but rather it did have some intricate kind of metalwork related to it. Maybe it looked something like this. We might ask again, what about this? From the dimensions of the Old Testament, it stood about five feet tall. So it was not any small little candlestick. Again, five feet was a rather tall matter. It would have been positioned on your left as you entered into the holy place. And you'll notice that those seven bowls or lamps were to be burning. I wonder if that was significant. How often were they to burn and what went along with that character? If we return to our page of notes and continue our thinking on some of these matters, we arrive again at some of these thoughts from both Old and New Testament alike. As you can see there near the bottom of that particular slide, they have a very strong correlation with the essence of spiritual light. We noted this morning, interestingly, in our lesson about darkness and how the world dwells in it and pursues it. And standing directly opposite and in contrast to it is the light of God. This candlestick and those lamps that burned represented the glorious light that God had shown forth to the children of Israel to show them the proper and right way and to lead them in that way that would be for their blessing and for their good and for God's blessing and covenant in their behalf. Some additional thoughts on that may bring it to the New Testament for us and allow us to give some thinking as to what was involved in it. You'll notice some of these thoughts, if I might lead you to consider them with me. Isn't it true that just as surely as those lamps thus were representative of the light of God's presence with Israel, notice how that the holy place, the church, is blessed with the presence of God in our leadership and guidance as well. So many passages could well be noted here, but I've chosen a sampling from both Old and New Testament that will hone our thinking. In the 119th Psalm, that longest chapter of the Old Testament, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We read in Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verse 20, again about the presence of God through His Word and the light that accords thereto. We can see in those passages like Acts 17, 11, in which we learn about the determination and the devotion of those in the New Testament era intent on following the light made available to them through the revelation of God and His Word. For isn't it still the case that those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica? in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. In looking at some of the remainder of those passages, perhaps you've already thought with me about that glorious light seen in the presence of the Son of God Himself. We noted it even this morning that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, John 8 verse 12. And wasn't it Jesus who was the light shining in darkness? And even John the Baptist used that description of him in John chapter 1 and later in John chapter 3. Perhaps one final passage to which we might turn that seems to speak volumes is we recollect in the opening chapter of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, when John was beginning to write things he had seen, 
He was told in Revelation 1.11, John, what thou seest, write in a book. Four verses later, four verses later in Revelation 1.15, we learn on that occasion that John had the blessedness of seeing in this case in the midst of his churches a golden candlestick walking in the presence with them. And that golden candlestick, representative, of course, of the Son of God in the midst of his churches, isn't it true today that Christ should be the center point of your life in Christ and mine and should be the center point of what we as a church seek to accomplish. He's the light that guides our way, that shows our path, that illuminates our goings, and that leads us in the proper and right way before the God of heaven. Inasmuch as that candlestick description is provided for us, you might also notice another thought that seems readily interesting. How many bowls were there on that candlestick? There were seven. That number seven so often utilized to call to our attention heavenly perfection, the greatness of that perfectness in relationship to God. For as often as we remember the number seven used in both Old and New Testament, remember that there were, of course, seven churches, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven vials, and a whole host of others that were recognized as being in number seven, including seven spirits. To, in fact, directly notice one of the statements of Revelation 4, verses 3 through 5. Seven spirits. The spirit was that one who leads us today by virtue of his word. The word he's provided, the revelation he's given. This candlestick thus powerfully represents the light and the glorious brightness of the very presence of God's illumination of ancient Israel. And he does so today through his son, that golden candlestick. They're again represented in the Revelation, chapter number 1. How sad in light of those matters is it that there are some who choose not to follow the candlestick. They choose some other way that they think is illuminated. They choose to follow some way, be it based on their thinking, their feelings, what someone has said. They have missed the light altogether of the candlestick. Isn't that a tragedy? And isn't a sadness? For just as surely as that candlestick was representative of ancient Israel in terms of God's leading of them and the brightness of his presence, notice how bright his presence is in his church today. You and I, again, as we noted this morning, are called the light in terms of those possessed with this and able to share that light to those around us. As you give some thought to those matters, we now come to the third element, the altar of incense, and its significance. It was positioned again just in front of the veil, directly in front of you as you entered into that holy place. Perhaps you can readily appreciate another picture might be helpful as we try to envision it. Here is one particular rendition of what it may have looked like. You'll notice again the stays by which it's carried. You'll notice these simple elements on top also described in the Old Testament, various things that are sometimes called snuff dishes and various other elements like that. They were to, in fact, be recognized as part of that altar of incense. And it was at that altar that later Nadab and Abihu made a fatal flaw in Leviticus chapter 10. But for now, at least looking at that, might we quickly say that God specified the metal of which it was to be made, how high it was to be, all of its dimensions. All of those particulars are not necessarily so needful for us this evening. But as we revisit some of the features about that altar of incense, 
its position again just in front of that veil leads us to notice the priests again were commanded to burn incense on that particular altar and to do so each morning and each evening, twice per day. And as they did so, it was to have a very deep and powerful significance for the children of Israel. Later, as we recognize David, as well as Solomon, and even into the New Testament, days of John the Baptist and his father, we find some of the things stated about the very character of that altar of incense. For now, you might notice near the bottom of that slide, no strange incense was to be used. It was to be offered not only that which God commanded, but in the way he commanded. It was that strange fire that Nadab and Abihu used that brought about their death, didn't it? In Leviticus 10, you might notice particularly in verses 1 through 3 where fire came forth from by the very nature of God and consumed them. That leads us to see whatever the significance of this might be for us today, we must take great care and caution to ensure that we too do not make any errors like Nadab and Abihu in fact made. On to the significance of this, we might put it in language like this. The burning of incense as it took place in the Old Testament had a powerful significance to it. And that significance was in fact in language like this. I've listed there for you that it was a symbol and a rather noted one at that. Not only of the worship and adoration that Israel was to shed forth and offer unto God, but also it had behind it the idea of an access to Him. For after all, if that incense was offered, it presupposed that there was the one receiving the offering that was in fact offered in it. And so not only was there the realization of the worship itself or the approach to God, there was the identity of the access that it asserted. As you give some thought to what that access involves, pause for a moment and notice the church by its very nature is a worshiping body. All through the New Testament, that is what one finds the church doing. It worships. It comes together in assemblies, appreciative of the fact of what God has done for them, and they are more than privileged and they feel blessed and happy to enter into those periods of worship. And when we'd see those passages such as Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, worship God, in which that is simply affirmed and stated as a natural thing the church is to do. Jesus had stated again in Matthew 4, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 14. When we thus give some thought to the worship, such as what we're engaging in this afternoon and evening, you'll notice also some other thoughts that goes into that worship. That worship, of course, consists of acts of reverence directed to God. That's the very definition of what the word means. And thus might we ask, just as the priests were to, in fact, offer that incense, when, how, and the way that God commanded, may we with great sternness say, God demands worship to be offered to Him today explicitly the way, in truth, that He has commanded no deviations permitted, no loopholes allowed, no human cognitions are those things which he accepts. And hence, just as Nadab and Abihu made that fatal flaw, many in our world can do so today and choose to do the very same. Worship must be in accordance to both spirit and truth. John 4 verse 24. 
when we give some thought then to the worship and how it needs to be offered so as specifically as did that, you'll notice that that was highlighted in many ways in both Old and New Testament. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my spirit and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Later we read about the significance of worship in the New Testament era when Paul corrected various and sundry ones when they had gone astray with respect to its meaning as in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul addressed the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, he very interestingly noted to them that they had so soon departed from the gospel that they had received. They had departed. They had left its truth and had left the savor of its pristine simplicity and power. You'll notice furthermore in light of that matter of worship, Christians today, you and I, have access to God. We have that not because we feel it in our heart, not because somebody has told us, but because He has said so in this book. And hence, those who rely upon I feel it have made a rather eternally great blunder in their life. The Israelites didn't feel it. God said it. And that's the only way they knew it. And can we not appreciate then at that altar of incense that a rather notable access to God was symbolized? That access, however, was to be only perfected much later with the coming of Christ. For as you and I also know today, it's only through Him that we have that promised access to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verse 6 of John 14. And so isn't it interesting that every piece of furniture in that holy place pointed directly to the Christ, pointing to Him and the blessings that He would offer and the opportunities that He would make available to the human family to understand and know only what was shadowed in the days of the Old Testament in this tabernacle era back then. In the description of that access to God, we often highlight the access made available to us in prayer. In Hebrews 4, verse 16, we read on that occasion, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. You and I not only have access to God in that fashion, we have it boldly. Boldly. Not happenstantially, not circumstantially, not with wonderment or in a perhaps character, you and I can boldly approach the throne of grace, offering our petitions unto Him and offering our thanksgiving as well. In all these ways tonight, the holy place has really pointed to the blessings that we enjoy in Jesus, the blessings we have in His church and His body. And as we close our lesson, there was to be a summary slide there. I see it has... I can make it appear by going backward, it would seem. I wasn't aware I could do that, but at least it worked. And so as you can see, I may summarize some of the things by noting the table of showbread, the golden candlestick, as well as the altar of incense, all typify powerful blessings you and I enjoy today, and may we never take them for granted, but may we understand that all of ancient Israel didn't enjoy these and all the world doesn't enjoy them today either. has to be those in the holy place. Those in the church. Are you a faithful member of that church? If not, you have forfeited these blessings. You no longer have a direct line of access to the Father. You don't enjoy the communion that was noted in that table of showbread. 
and you have lost sight of the glorious light of what this offers in the candlestick, why not make a change in your life tonight? Why not, in fact, in the realization of what those signify, come back to your first love and apply to your life the greatness of these blessings for you today? Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. He offered his body as a sacrifice for you. And he wants you to be with him in heaven forevermore. Why will you delay or procrastinate tonight? If you need to respond publicly to the call of invitation, why delay? Why wait? Why not let your needs be made known now while together we stand and while we sing?